Volume Two, Chapter Three of the Life and Amours of the Beautiful, Gay, and Dashing Kate Percival, the Belle of the Delaware. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life and Amours of Kate Percival, written by herself. Volume Two, Chapter Three A Change of Fortune. The very next day following our orgy, I received a letter from my father's lawyer, informing me of the death of my only surviving parent, at the same time informing me that he had left all his property to be divided equally between my brother and myself. His wealth was large, for his habits had been penurious, and I found myself the possessor of at least ten thousand dollars a year. This, of course, entirely altered my prospects in life and it was natural that I should immediately throw up my engagement as governess and return home for the purpose of assisting the settlement of my father's affairs. I bade an affectionate farewell to Herbert and Amy, and even shed tears at parting with them. In due time I reached home. How still and quiet the place seemed! My brother was abroad, so that everything connected with the property was left to me. I worked energetically and soon produced something like order. I had been home about a week when I received another letter from my father's lawyer, who resided in New York, stating that my presence was absolutely required in that city to sign certain documents relative to my father's property, and advising me to come at once. I did not hesitate to obey his wishes, and that same evening entered the cars for New York. It was about six o'clock when we started, and I took a seat in the rear end of the car. For some miles I was alone, but a young gentleman of about eighteen got into the car from a way-station and sat down by my side. I could see by the dim light that he was very polite, and we had quite an agreeable conversation together. By and by it grew quite dark, for the lamp stationed in the middle of the car threw very little light where we sat. Our conversation grew more confidential, I may even say affectionate. The young gentleman grew somewhat bold, and, taking my hand, pressed it in his. The novelty of the situation, and the fact that for ten days I had tasted no sexual pleasure, rendered me oblivious to all resemblance of modesty, and I allowed him to do as he pleased. Nay, I even encouraged him, for I allowed my hand to fall, as if by accident, on a certain protuberance in front of his pantaloons. I had no sooner touched this sensitive spot than a shiver ran through him, and he immediately retained my hand there as a prisoner. All reserve now left him. He had spread a shawl over our knees so that our actions could not be seen by the other passengers. I suddenly felt the rogue dragging up my skirts and petticoats, and in a few moments his hand was on my naked thigh. He glided over it, and his fingers came into contact with the hair covering my mons veneris. He had already divided the lips of my coral cavity with his digits, and was advancing one in the very center of my vagina when the train entered Philadelphia. Of course this put a stop to his progress, and we were compelled to assume a decent position. He was very attentive to me on the boat when we crossed the Delaware, but he had no opportunity to renew his enterprises. At last we were safely seated in one of the Camden and Amboy railroad cars. As luck would have it, the car was very empty, there not being more than two other persons in it besides ourselves. We took our places as far from them as we could. 
The young gentleman turned the seats so that he now sat opposite to me. The train had not left the station a hundred yards before he commenced operations by making me rest my two feet in his seat, one on each side of him so that he sat between my thighs. He now raised my petticoats and amused himself by feeling my thighs bottom and slit. He played with me for some minutes, titillating the interior of my vagina with his finger, pressing my thighs and tickling my bottom. In the meantime I had released his instrument from its place of confinement, and grasping it in my hand I covered and uncovered its red head, and at the same time tickled his testicles. After a little time he drew me to the very edge of the seat, and, pointing his rod, entered my salacious slit. After a few pushes which sent a thrill of delight through me, he turned up all my clothes and regaled himself with the sight of his engine entering in and out of my coral sheath. I responsively moved my buttocks in answer to his thrusts, and in a few minutes we both discharged profusely. Four times did he thus embrace me during our journey from Philadelphia to New York, and four times did I pour down my libation of love's Jew. We parted the best of friends, and from that day to this I have never seen him, but the pleasure I enjoyed with him will never be effaced from my mind. Late the next day I called on Mr. Ralph Pittman, my father's lawyer. I found him to be a fine-looking man of about thirty-six years of age. He was nearly six feet high, and stout in proportion. He appeared to be very strong, and evidently enjoyed the most robust health. He received me very warmly, and I saw his fine eyes sparkle when he gazed on my womanly charms. My business with him was soon concluded, and it was decided that he should visit my late father's residence the ensuing week, for the purpose of finally settling up his affairs. I made up my mind that I would return home the next day, as the city with all its noise and confusion was not agreeable to my taste. The next morning I walked out on Broadway for the purpose of making a few purchases, when who should be the first person I met but Laura Castleton, my old teacher at B. Seminary, and the first who initiated me in the delights of love. Laura was dressed in the height of fashion, and was as beautiful as ever. She recognized me immediately and kissed me affectionately. We immediately adjourned to Taylor's, where we could converse in private. I told her everything that had occurred to me since I had seen her, disguising nothing. Her eyes sparkled and her bottom heaved when I depicted all the love scenes I had gone through. "'And now, dear Laura,' said I, when I had finished, "'tell me what you are doing now.' "'I am the mistress of the head Maison de Joie, New York.' "'What?' I returned. "'Do you mean to tell me that you keep a house of that kind?' "'I do indeed, and a delightful time I have of it.' "'How I should love to know its mysteries!' "'That you can easily do. Come and spend to-night with us. You shall see everything without being seen yourself. I have twenty-four magnificent girls living with me, and every one of them will be gloriously embraced to-night. You may depend upon it. The rooms are so arranged that we can see everything that transpires in them. Say you'll come.' My dear, I should love to. Only tell me where it is and at what hour I should come. I live at number 637 Mercer Street and come at seven o'clock. I will be there, you may depend on it. Soon after this we separated. I made my purchases, put off my departure until the next day, and at the appointed hour I was at Laura's door. 
my old friend met me at the entrance you have just come in time said she for horns greenwood has just taken olivia one of the handsomest of my boarders upstairs she is from new orleans and one of the most lascivious girls i ever saw i have no doubt we shall see some fun so saying she led me upstairs and ushered me into a closet which communicated with the adjoining room olivia and her friend were already there i was struck with the beauty of the couple the girl had intensely black hair and eyes, the latter of which were lighted up with desire and passion. Her bust, which her low-necked dress allowed to be seen, was really magnificent. Her companion was a fine, handsome young fellow of twenty-two or twenty-three. "'Well, darling,' said Horace, pressing her voluptuous bosom close to him, "'I have come to see you again. The thoughts of once more tasting the delights of your lovely person has kept me in a continued state of excitement all day. My staff is in a state of the fiercest direction. Let me have oracular demonstrations of the fact, said Olivia, opening his pantaloons in front. Out jumped his member, stiff and erect as a poker. Oh, you bad boy, she continued, taking it in her hand and rubbing it up and down. How gloriously still you are. I must kiss you then, you bad child. So saying, she took his member in her mouth and rolled her tongue over it, at the same time tickling his testicles. "'Great God!' he cried. "'This is too much. I shall spend, dear girl, if you do not cease. All my blood is in a flame!' "'It is so delicious. I hate to give it up,' she returned, giving it a last kiss. "'But I am excited as much as yourself. Slip your hand underneath my petticoats and feel how stiff my clitoris is.' He lifted up her skirts and took possession of Olivia's luscious con with his hand, and evidently found the little sentinel as stiff and firm as his own lance, for I saw by his motions that he was rubbing it between his fingers. "'How delightful!' said Olivia, a shudder of delight running through her frame. "'It is too much. Stay. Let me open my thighs a little wider. There. That is much better. Now you can manipulate my slit a great deal easier.' What intense pleasure! Rub my clitoris harder and titillate the interior of my mount with your other finger. Yes, darling, I will, but your petticoats are in the way, replied Horace. I want to see my finger enter in and out of your luscious grotto. I will soon remedy that, she replied, lifting her petticoats above her navel, thus exposing her magnificent thighs, a portion of her white belly, and, above all, her delicious con. How beautifully you are made, dear Olivia," said Horace, devouring with his eyes the luscious sight before him. What a luscious belly, and then this masterpiece of nature, this splendid bushy mount! What words can I find to express its beauties? What fine silky down surrounds this luscious little con? How deliciously the lips pout, inviting a visitor! Let me examine the interior of this abode of happiness. So saying, Horace seated himself on the ground between Olivia's thighs. With the fingers of one hand he opened the lips of her slit and peered curiously into the ruby cavity. He passed the other hand behind her, molding and pressing her buttocks, even advancing one finger into the narrow passage adjacent to the haven of love. After continuing this play for a minute or two, he inserted his tongue between the lips of her bijou, titillated the interior of her grotto, sucking her clitoris. 
Olivia was almost mad with pleasure, and showed it by opening her thighs to the widest extent. When she felt his tongue come in contact with her clitoris, she experienced the acme of delight. "'Stop, dear Horace,' said Olivia, throwing her arms around his neck. "'Or I shall spend, I shall indeed. Oh, darling, darling, for heaven's sake, stop!' "'It is a hard matter to leave the interior of your luscious grotto,' said Horace, withdrawing his tongue from her slit and looking into her face. The sensitive folds of your vagina embrace my tongue so deliciously, and your clitoris is so beautiful that I hate to give it up. But, darling, let me see your beautiful boobies. How fond you are of moulding and pressing a woman's breasts, returned Olivia, unhooking her dress and shaking it off her shoulders, thus exposing her magnificently developed semi-globes. Then here they are. Do what you like with them. See how stiff and firm the nipples stand out. Horace then began to toy with her breasts, moulding and pressing them, and then sucking their rosy nipples. While he was thus engaged, Olivia took possession of his staff of love, capping and uncapping its large ruby head. This is too beautiful, said Horace, burying his head between her breasts. I can contain myself no longer. Come, dearest, let us perform the last act of love. I must embrace you. You see how eager my member is to enter your delicious con. I assure you, my slit is not less eager to receive it. Dear Horace, I burn for you. Come, my dear angel, come. Embrace me. Bury this delicious instrument into the deepest recesses of my vagina. Do not spare me. Push it into the very hilt. Make your testicles knock against my bottom. Come, darling, into me quick. See, I open the portals for you. There. Now you have a fair mark. Come, darling, come. While she was thus speaking, she half reclined herself on the sofa and opened her thighs to the widest extent. He then divided the lips of her salacious con with a finger of each hand, and revealed the interior of that ruby grotto. Horace rushed between her thighs, and passing one arm around her neck, brought his instrument to the entrance of her slit. Olivia placed one of her feet on the table, standing close by the sofa, thus stretching her thighs as widely apart as possible. In another moment he was plunged to the very hilt in her body. "'There, girl, you have it now,' said Horace, when his instrument was clasped by the lips of her coral sheath. "'Oh, how deliciously warm your vagina is! Oh!' How tightly your lovely con clasps my penis, and your delicious belly, how soft it is! Your charming boobies, too, how delightfully they beat against my chest! Stay, I must suck the nectar from those rosy lips once more!" He continued bending forward, and took one of the strawberry nipples in his mouth, at the same time continuing his energetic thrusts. "'There! How heavenly! How delicious! How exquisite!" "'It is too much, darling,' returned Olivia, throwing her legs around his loins. "'Closer. Closer still. Look in the mirror and see how deliciously your penis fits my vagina. Stay. Let me raise my thighs a little. You will see it better then. There, now you see it. How lusciously it enters in and out of the coral cavity. Now, I can see its ruby head. 
Now it is lost in the hair covering my mouth. His strokes quickened. Oh, oh, I can stand no more. She continued, wiggling her buttocks. Dear love, I spend, I come, I come, oh, oh. I, I too am coming. There, there, dear Olivia, come, come. During this scene their motions had increased rapidly, Horace giving violent thrusts, and Olivia meeting him with corresponding motions of her buttocks. As the climax approached, they seemed crazy with excitement, and at the moment of emission their legs and thighs mingled together in confusion. You may be sure that I was no passive inspector of this scene. During its continuance, Laura had taken possession of my mons veneris, and with her finger sought to give my excited feeling relief. At the moment of their discharge I too succumbed, and was so much overcome that I was compelled to sit down to catch my breath for a few minutes. When I had somewhat recovered I again took my station at the post, to enjoy commanding a view of the chamber. Horace was now stretched lengthwise on the sofa. He was perfectly naked, and Olivia was lying on the top of him, also stark naked. His arm was passed around her loins, and he pressed her tightly against his belly. His left hand rested on her shoulder. Her mouth was fixed to his, and her breasts rested on his chest. Her thighs were stretched widely apart, and Horace's staff was so deeply embedded in Olivia's slit that the very hair of their genitals intermingled. They evidently experienced intense pleasure. Olivia's buttocks were elevated high in the air, and she moved them energetically. Every time she raised her bottom I could see Horace's lance entering in and out of the lips of her bushy mount, and sometimes I could even see the rosy head of his dart as he plunged it again and again into her coral slit. This motion became more rapid, and soon the lips of Olivia's glorious con seemed to contract and embrace Horace's staff closely. She then gave two or three convulsive struggles, and ended by falling without motion on Horace's belly. At the same moment I saw the sperm trickle down her thighs. "'They have done for the night,' whispered Laura to me. "'Come with me, and I will show you something else. For I am very much mistaken if Rose has not a visitor by this time.' So saying we left our place of concealment, and entered a similar apartment at the other end of the corridor. We entered a closet in this room, and peeped through some cracks in the boarding into the next apartment. I saw a very pretty little plump girl entirely naked on her hands and knees on the bed, presenting her delicious white buttocks with her lovely slit, shaded with brown hair between them. Behind her was a tall, fine-looking man, about forty years of age, also naked. In his hand was a birch, with which he was gently tickling the lovely girl's bottom. "'What does this mean?' I asked of Laura. "'That girl you see there, Rose Monson,' she replied. Nothing gives her so much pleasure as to be soundly whipped on the bottom by her lover. They always begin in this way. Her companion is George Coulson, a very rich gentleman. But watch them, and you will see something amusing. I peeped again, and saw that George was using the rod a little more freely than when I had first looked. Already the cheeks of her buttocks were turned a rosy hue. His instrument was so stiff that it stood boldly up against his belly. "'Harder, George,' murmured Rose, her face buried in the pillow. "'I scarcely feel it. Harder, my dear boy, flog me harder.' 
George obeyed her wishes and let fall a shower of cuts on her plump backside. He continued this for a minute or two, when suddenly throwing down the rod he rushed to her, and to my surprise, instead of entering her by the legitimate road, he entered her en coule, and, passing his hand in front of her, buried two of his fingers into her hairy mount. Every thrust of his buttocks sent his fingers deeper into her vagina, giving her intense delight. Suddenly I saw her put her hand between her own lily-white thighs and tickle his testicles. It immediately brought on an emission from both of them, and they sank exhausted on the bed. Laura now led me to another apartment, and again we took up our position. Here I saw a strong man standing in the middle of the room, holding in his arms a naked girl. Her arms were clasped around his neck, and her thighs around his hips. His instrument was buried to the very depth in her vagina. He had one hand clasped round her body, and the other supported her bottom. He moved her rapidly up and down. Every time he did so his staff entered in and out of her cavity, and in a few moments they both discharged. In the next chamber I saw a somewhat different scene. A beautiful girl, entirely naked, was seated on a low ottoman with her lovely thighs stretched widely apart. Her lover was kneeling on the floor before her and was caressing her lovely con with his tongue. I was so placed that I could see his organ of speech enter in and out of her ruby sheath, the lips of which appeared to caress it lovingly. This act alone was sufficient to make him discharge copiously at the same moment that his tongue made her dissolve in bliss. In another chamber a couple appeared to relish giving themselves manual pleasure instead of the act itself. For a lovely girl reclined on the bed with nothing but her chemise on, but still having her breasts and the lower portion of her body bare. Her companion lay by her side. He had his fingers embedded in her slit while she had hold of his instrument. They moved their hands together while he had hold of her bubbies and tickled her bottom with his other hand. A few rapid motions caused the sperm to fly from his staff, and he drew his finger dripping from her vagina at the same moment. Another couple had chosen a strange way to satisfy their desires. The girl lay with her head on a pillow near the edge of the bed. The man was behind her and had passed her thighs around the upper part of his chest, supporting her belly with his hand. They were closely joined together. He appeared to be able to enter a prodigious way into her by this mode, her bottom almost touching his face. While he embraced her, he bent his head forward and kissed her buttocks. They both soon emitted. I saw a great many other couples, but as they were for the most part a repetition of what I have already described, I shall omit referring to them. I thought I had seen all, when I suddenly heard a ring at the bell, and almost immediately afterwards I heard a gentleman's voice say something in French in the hall. It is Alphonse de la Tour, said Laura. Now I shall have to show you something really worth seeing. He is the particular friend of Odoxy, the most beautiful girl in my whole establishment, and more amorous and lascivious than all of them put together. She is lately from France, and does not speak a word of English. She is perfectly crazy when enjoying the sexual act and acts in the most preposterous manner. Her naked body is worth going a hundred miles to see. She is so gloriously beautiful. But come, let us get to her room first, for it is best not to miss the slightest preliminary of their love meeting. 
I was very curious to see this paragon, and followed Laura to her chamber which joined that of the French girl. We were soon installed in a convenient place of observation. We had been there but a few moments when Odoxie, followed by her lover Alphonse, made her appearance. At the first glance I cast on the girl, I was struck perfectly dumb at her surpassing loveliness. She was about nineteen years of age. Her face was perfectly oval, and her features as regular as if they belonged to a Grecian statue. Her complexion was a rich brown. Her hair was intensely black, and hung in a thousand little ringlets on her magnificently formed neck and shoulders. Her eyes were shaded with long black eyelashes. Her teeth were beautifully white and regular. Her arms might have formed a model for a sculptor, while her bust, which her low-necked dress allowed to be seen, was the most beautiful I had ever beheld. Imagine two lovely globes of snow which were so beautifully developed that they seemed to struggle to get free from the slight bonds that confined them. Every breath she drew caused those magnificent orbs to heave in sight. Her hips were fine, her figure magnificent, and her hands and feet excessively small. Her companion was a fine, handsome young man of about thirty. He was well made, evidently of a very amorous disposition. The moment they entered the chamber she ran up to her lover and, throwing herself in his arms, imprinted some hot kisses on his lips. I could even see her velvet organ of speech enter his mouth in search of his, and they remained for a moment glued together. Suddenly the amorous girl released one of her divine breasts from its bonds of confinement and pushed it forward for him to kiss. Baiser mon téton, mon cher Alphonse, je meurs pour vous, said she and she herself slipped the rosy nipple in his mouth. While he was thus engaged she kissed his hair, his ears, and forehead. "'Oh, foutez-moi, foutez-moi, mon cher, mon con est en feu!' she exclaimed. And with that she began to tear off his clothes, and in a few moments he was quite naked. She then, with trembling fingers, began to disrobe herself, and every garment she took off only revealed new beauties. At last she stood with nothing on but her chemise. Ôtez ma chemise, je suis si excitée que je ne le puis pas. Alphonse slipped her sole remaining garment over her head, and she stood in all her naked beauty before us. I had seen many naked women, but none to compare to Odoxie. She was grace, beauty, and voluptuousness combined. Her skin was dazzling white, her limbs models of beauty, her tapering legs, her plump thighs, her white belly, her magnificent buttocks, and her mount of Venus were the most magnificent objects I had ever beheld. The moment she was naked, she knelt down before the object of her adoration, the position she assumed slightly opening the lips of her slit and giving me a glimpse of the coral interior, and, taking his instrument in her hands, she nestled it between her breasts, and bending her head forward kissed it again and again. She then rose to her feet again, and making him lie with his back on the bed she kissed his whole body. Now it was his staff, now it was his testicles, now she even caressed his buttocks. She placed one of his feet against her mount and, dividing the lips with her fingers, forced his toe into her coral sheath and moved herself rapidly up and down on it. This curious proceeding was very exciting to behold, and her lascivious caresses caused Alphonse's instrument to assume a prodigious state of erection. Now she got on the top of him and, turning her bottom to his face, impaled herself on his staff. 
I saw its bulbous head distinctly separate the luscious lips of her slit, and then beheld it slowly disappear in her sensitive vagina. But she only kept it there for a minute, for jumping up again she placed it between the fleshy cushions of her buttocks, and holding it there with her hand moved her bottom up and down. Then she suddenly turned around and rubbed her white belly against it. Now she put it between her swelling thighs, now her armpit. In fact, there was no part of her body to which she did not conduct it. These manipulations were more than the young Frenchman could bear. He suddenly rose up, and pressing her palpitating body in his arm, he laid her on her back on the bed. She opened her lovely thighs to the widest extent, and revealed to him all the delights of the domain of Venus. How can I describe the spectacle that we saw from our hiding-place? An eminence shaded with a mass of hair as black as jet, the beauties of which the most delicate pencil could not trace. In a moment he was between her magnificent thighs. Odoxes seized his member, and guided it into the delicious interior of her rosy con. It grasped his penis like a glove. Odoxy was almost wild with excitement. She breathed short, and her bubbies rose and fell in the most delicious confusion. Their images were reflected in the mirrors surrounding the apartment. It was a glorious sight. There lay Odoxy extended on the bed, her head reposing on the pillow, and her long hair streaming by the side of the bed. One of her legs rested on the ground, while the other was a little elevated, by this means extending her thighs to the widest capacity. Alphonse was between them, his staff buried in her con, with one of his hands moulding a globe of snow while the other was passed round her body. How delicious the contact appeared to be! He suddenly leaned forward and imprinted a thousand kisses on her lips. He then withdrew himself slowly from her, only, however, to plunge more deeply into the innermost recesses of her con. So delicious, so transporting, so celestial was the pleasure that they both felt that Odoxy threw her legs around his loins and pressed him closely to her, and they twisted and writhed in each other's arms. Odoxy suddenly exclaimed, Oh, ciel! Quel transport! Ah! 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 And finishing with a prolonged sigh, she poured down her tribute to the god of love, and then, with a few convulsive heaves of her divine bottom, she let go her hold and fainted away. He also emitted copiously and fell annihilated by her side. In a few moments they had both recovered. Odoxy wiped Alphonse perfectly dry, and her lover performed the same office for her. Neither of them appeared to be satisfied, for I could see that the Frenchman's instrument was still in a state of fierce erection, and Odoxy, by her touches and manipulations, proved that she was as amorous as ever. They now performed a strange action, which only shows how foolish young people can be when they sincerely love each other. Odoxy went to a cupboard and took from it a bottle of champagne. She now placed herself on the edge of the bed in a half-reclined position. Alphonse sat on the floor, with his head underneath her thighs so that his mouth came in contact with her hairy mount. Odoxy now uncorked the champagne, and, drinking a glass herself, she poured another glass on her belly in such a manner that it ran down to her slit and from there into Alphonse's mouth. He swallowed it with the greatest gusto, and the operation was continued until the bottle was empty. This sight, strange as it was, inflamed me wonderfully. The parties were so beautiful, and every portion of their bodies so scrupulously clean, that all disgust was removed. 
The bottle was no sooner empty than they again proceeded to satisfy their amorous desires. Alphonse lay on the ground, resting his head on a low stool. She straddled his face so that her mons veneris came in contact with his mouth. As she stood exactly opposite our place of concealment, we could see his tongue enter in and out of her luscious sheath. While he was fetting her con, he advanced a finger into the narrow passage adjacent to the legitimate road, and kept time with his tongue and finger. Every time his tongue came in contact with her clitoris, a convulsive shudder ran through her, and her bottom moved responsively to his titillations. At last they both succumbed, he from the force of imagination, and she from the actual contact of his organ of speech on her excited clitoris. It was now quite late, and after Alphonse had departed the house closed for the night. I bade my friend an affectionate farewell and returned to my hotel. The next day I started for home. End of Volume 2, Chapter 3